This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 165 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, um, I hope your week has been a good one so far. Um, if not, I hope the next 30 minutes or so are a nice little reprieve for you. Right, That's why we have hobbies, and that's why we consume hobby content, I think. Um, I've said it before, but I don't ever want to take for granted the fact that you've chosen uh, to listen to this show today. So uh, once again, thank you for doing that. Just know that I appreciate you. Um, all right, so this past week, I was able to hit up a local card show once again. Right, I, I seem to do that at least a couple times a month. And um, some of you might have seen my pickups on social media, but I grabbed a 96-97 credentials of Chris Mills, which is funny considering Jake Roy and I talked about those on last week's episode. I I hope you guys were able to check that out. Uh, Also check out his YouTube channel. And then I also picked up a 96 finest reprint refractor of Elgin Baylor. And that's a name that's going to come up later today. So I won't say too much more right now, but I am going to talk about refractors a little bit. And it's something that has come up from time to time in my uh, listener mailbags recently. But um, over the past week, I've been working on organizing my Pacers refractor collection. And I I should preface all of this by saying I'm going to generalize and refer to all of these as refractors, uh, even the Panini stuff. And I know that the term refractor is technically trademarked by Tops, but the technology is the same. So Um, I talked about this project a little before, but it was primarily inspired by Ryan, who's been on the show before and goes by uh, the the handle MindCycleCards, and then also Caleb, who posts on Instagram under the handle Caleb underscore M2034. Both of these guys are team collectors, and they posted videos of Z-Folio binders with refractor runs of their respective teams for every year in order. And I think each one of them was set up a little different. One of them maybe was just chrome and prism. And then one of them, I think it was Ryan's, had a little bit of everything. Although Ryan has a binder for everything. And um, I don't say that, you know, to downplay that. Like, I am just thoroughly impressed. If you go to his profile, he's got a shelf full of binders. They're organized. They're labeled. It's it's uh, He is the binder king. But um, I like the idea of a project like this, of, of just a refractor binder. Because in theory, you know, it's cost efficient. It gives you something to dig for at card shows. Um, It helps you narrate the history of your favorite team, at least from 93 on. Um, And then it's not really something that can be finished immediately. So it forces you to be patient and to try and enjoy the chase. So it was probably around a year and a half ago or maybe two years ago that I decided I would start a similar project of my own. 
So I bought a 12 pocket leather Z folio online, which, you know, they cost around $30. They hold 480 cards. And I had to figure out what sets I wanted on the inside. So once I did, I went on um, Trading Card Database uh, to copy and paste checklists that I could merge into an Excel file. You know, in theory, this would allow me to take my list with me wherever I went. Although I have to confess, I haven't always been great about keeping up with it, but, you know, I tried. Um, So anyway, what sets did I include? Because I talked about how Ryan and Caleb, you know, seems like they each had a little different configuration. Well, you know, I wanted to try and include two Chromium products per season, if possible. And well, you know, prior to 96, you could only do Tops Finest. So I started off with pages for 93 Finest, 94 Finest, 95 Finest, uh, which the majority of those pages are still pretty bare. I wish I had picked up more of those in the past when they were a little cheaper, but you know, it is what it is. Um, and then starting in 96, each season had a page for Finest and a page for Tops Chrome. Uh, now, Finest started to phase out a little bit in the late 2000s, and then, of course, Tops lost the license after 2009 Chrome, but that gives you a rough idea of what the Tops portion of that binder looked like. And I wanted to continue the process of adding two silver or two refractor sets per season. Uh, we had a few Panini years without Chromium products in general, so after 2009, it goes straight to 2012 with Prism and Select, which were both new products that year. And I kept that configuration until 2016 when I switched the second set from Select to Optic, which that was the first year for Optic. Um, I liked the configuration and the look of Optic better. Um, It had a more traditional look with a border to it. And, uh, you know, a lot of the Optic sets remind me more of the 2000s Topps Chrome stuff than than Prism actually does. So uh, I really liked Optic. Um, so I, I, you know, started building those sets by the year and and eventually I ran into a problem and I should have anticipated this from the start, but I ran out of room. Um, I think 2020 prism was slotted for the last page of my binder. Um, but you know, here we are post 2020, although, you know, Panini's still putting out older sets. It's confusing, right? Uh, but anyway, I've run out of room. Now that's not to say that all 480 spots were full. But all of the pages were accounted for, even if I didn't have the cards to fill them yet. I, you know, they at least had placeholders for cards that I hope will be there in the future. Um, at the same time that I was running out of room, I'd been kind of admiring Bowman Chrome stuff from afar. And you guys know I'm a 2000s guy, um, and I opened Bowman, you know, Bowman Blasters back, especially 2005. I remember opening quite a few. Uh, but for whatever reason, I've kind of dismissed some of these sets as being secondary. I don't know why. You know, they look great. Like I said, I even have the the memories of opening them. Um, and then some of them are a lot more limited than their Chrome counterparts. But for whatever reason, I drew the line and, and there were no Bowman Chrome cards in that binder. Um, you know, it finally dawned on me that I could solve two problems at the same time. If I just ordered a second binder... I could add Bowman's Best and Bowman Chrome for whatever years they existed, which which wasn't every year. Um, and Binder 1 would just be top stuff. So I'd have Bowman's Best, Bowman Chrome, uh, Tops Chrome, Tops Finest in there. Um, and then Binder 2 could include just Panini stuff starting with 2012 Prism. And I would have, you know, I would still have 10 pages or so to work with over the next handful of years until Fanatics takes over, which would be perfect. I could do five years of, you know, of uh, Prism and optic. So um, that's what I've been working on. I ordered my Z folio on Amazon. I went back on Trading Card Database to grab checklists for the sets that I hadn't included in that Excel spreadsheet. I merged them in. 
Um, they didn't have Bowman's Best or Bowman Chrome for every year, so you know I just included them in for whatever year they were manufactured. I still haven't added Top Stadium Club yet. I figure that's only a matter of time too. But you know those refractor sets were a lot smaller, just because the Chrome, uh, the Chrome team set might have five cards. There might only be one or two refractors. I think like '98. I think for the Pacers, it's just Chris Mullen and uh, Al Harrington. So anyway. I got everything figured out before I started rearranging things, and then I started shuffling the existing cards around. Um, Along the way, I've had people ask what my process for acquiring cards looks like. And I mentioned earlier that I like this project because it's not something I could start and finish in a short amount of time. You know, well, I suppose if I really wanted to be aggressive with this, I could throw down a bunch of money at the start and probably finish it all in a month or two. But I'm more in favor of the long approach. Like I said, it gives me something to chase. And um, even if I could acquire them all up front for like two or three bucks a piece, that would add up quickly. Not to mention the shipping cost of buying every single card on eBay. I'm trying to avoid that route if possible. So um, now that I've been at least working on this project in some form for a year or two, uh, my current strategy is as follows. Um, I'm having trouble finding some of the early Chrome and Finest stuff. I'm talking like, you know, 93 finest, uh, 96 chrome, although I'd say the chrome is a lot harder to find. But when I say I'm having trouble finding, I'm having trouble finding it at the price that I want for finest. Um, I realize I'm just going to have to bite the bullet at some point and pay for those, especially the Reggie Miller stuff. I didn't grab a 96 chrome refractor before those blew up, and I'm kicking myself about it now, but you know what? I can't go back in time. It is what it is. Um, the rest of the early finest refractors I can probably get for under $5 a piece. Um, although I am holding out on a lot of those, hoping that, you know, maybe my patience will pay off or maybe I'll find people that I can swap with down the road. And then I'm also being a little picky. For instance, I'm, I'm trying to find a Rick Smith that isn't super hulked out. Um, I've talked about it before, but the greening is a little harsher on the guys that are, um, for lack of a better term, pigmently challenged. Now, occasionally I'll land a player in a refractor lot I buy on eBay. I like that because I can usually move the rest of the cards in a lot and, you know, cover the cost. Uh, But that doesn't happen often. But I did find a nice Chris Mullen No Protector Finest Refractor that way last year, which uh, I I felt like was a pretty nice find. Um, I also found a nice uh, 2012 Paul George Select Silver that way, which transitions me into the Panini stuff. Similar to the early Tops Chrome and Finest stuff, I've realized that I'm just going to have to pay up for some of the early Prism stuff or the Paul George stuff, Uh, but that only applies to the first couple of years, really. The rest of the stuff I'm more likely to find at card shows. Uh, I like finding stuff in person if possible. You know, for whatever reason, it's more fun to me. Um, For a while, I was finding a lot of the newer Prism and Optic stuff in quarter and 50 cent boxes. Well, the hobby changed, and a lot of those have since turned into dollar boxes, and that doesn't seem like a huge cost, but, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm trying to get these as cheap as possible, especially if they're not rare. So when things calm back down again, you know, I might even be able to pull some of those from packs myself, um, but we're not quite there yet. So until then, it makes more sense for me to buy them on Check Out My Cards or Com C for short. Um, I was going to talk some about the site anyway, but I guess this is a, a great time to announce that the show has a new sponsor, and it's ComC, which I'm really excited about because it's a site I use quite a bit. Uh, ComC.com is your home for buying, 
selling, and flipping all types of trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 28 million cards across all sports, genres, and eras. With a ComC.com account, you can purchase cards from different sellers over time and ship them home together later or immediately reprice them for sale on the ComC marketplace. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at CheckoutMyCards. So the process that I just read there, um, you know, that's what I've been doing for some time with this newer stuff. And I mentioned that a lot of these silvers are winding up in dollar boxes at card shows. Well, I went through a week or two ago and grabbed um, a 2019 Optic Hollow of Malcolm Brogdon for 45 cents. Uh, I got Demona Sabonis for 54 cents and Jeremy Lamb for 34 cents. Yes, you know, 34 cents. Um, not only that, but they don't use stock images. So I get to see the actual cards ahead of time. And then I just add them to my shipment of patches or vintage cards or whatever else I've been buying up. So um, anyway, to sum up, this refractor project has been a lot of fun so far. It's forced me to learn about sets. It's helped me to become a more resourceful collector. And it's something I can continue for the years to come. And maybe at some point I'll try to get some video up on my YouTube so you can see for yourself. Okay, on to the mail. I've only got one package I want to talk about this week, but it was a good one. And it was actually a joint effort from a couple of friends. Um, it was Adam, a.k.a. The Rodman Gallery on Instagram, and Jeff, a.k.a. Kukoch ITB, um, on a number of different platforms and blowout forums and everything. Uh, now, these are two guys that I was lucky enough to have met in person at the 2019 National. And then Jeff and I got to hang out again in 2021 when we got lost together in a parking garage in Chicago. Kind of felt like a Seinfeld episode. Uh, but both of these guys have always been super supportive of the show, and I appreciate them. And they sent me a package this week that included two things. And the first one was a 1992 Upper Deck NBA Draft Night team sheet for the Pacers. Um, and after a little bit of research, it looks like this is something that Upper Deck created for 22 different teams. And it's like a, you know, it's a jumbo size sheet here, uh, fits in a, a binder page. And um, it lists the 91, 92 rookies for that specific team, which in this case is the Pacers, and it has their logo. Um, and then the bottom portion of the sheet has cards that depict the number one overall NBA pick, so not Pacers, but overall from 1986 to 1991. So it leaves off with Larry Johnson. Uh, I don't know a lot about these, but I found a website someone created called UpperDeckSheets.net, which I was floored that that even exists, which, you know, that's another reason why this hobby is so awesome. Um, but that website, UpperDeckSheets.net, pictures all of them, and it says they were handed out at each one of the respective stadiums on June 24th. Uh, that would have been the night of the draft, so if, if that is indeed the case, I guess they were handed out at, uh, it'd have to have been the draft party. And, uh, you know, I'd like to verify this information with another source, but I haven't been able to find anything yet. So if you know, uh, please reach out. Now, the second thing inside this package was a 1999-2000 Topps MVP promotion parallel of Ron Artest. And I've talked about that parallel a few times on the show, including my conversation with Mark, the Ron Harper collector, you know, the guy that originally introduced me to him, um, these cards are limited to 100 copies, and in some cases, there's probably a lot less out there. Some of the lower-end guys are harder to track down because people just threw them away. Um, and I didn't have an Artest card, and I guess Jeff ran into someone at a show that had one, so um, I really appreciate him grabbing that and sending it to me free of charge. 
What's up, guys? This is Drew, Dar's 90s Cards on Instagram. I'm mainly looking for Penny Hardaway and Magic Uniform, uh, pinstripes only, not even the second iteration with the stars throughout the jersey. That's, that's no good. But also, any inserts from any other player between 95 and 99, um, but specifically between one per box and one per case type odds. Okay, thanks again, Drew. Um, Drew is a Blowout Forums veteran under the username Duron and a longtime listener of the show. I got a kick out of the jersey requirements there, partially because I, I've done the same thing. I'll buy certain cards because of the way, you know, maybe the parallels matches the jersey or whatever. Um, and when it comes to 90s jerseys, you can't get much better than those pinstriped magic uniforms. So maybe you've got some of those hanging out in your collection and they're ready for a new home. Drew is your guy. Um, speaking of cards finding a new home, there were a couple of successes from the Collector Classified segment here that were posted this week. The one that really stood out to me came from Ian, aka Kiyoki's Cardboard. You might remember him from episode 159 where he talked about looking for Danielle Marshall cards. Anyway, he wrote up a really nice post this week and I'm not going to read it here. You can go read it for yourself and I encourage you to do so. Um, it was talking about how he was a little bit stuck in the hobby and how he was getting burnout on things. And he ended up doing this Collector Classified segment. And um, another collector named Curtis, also known as 2NR1, on Instagram reached out to him. And the two of them were able to work out a trade. Ian got a Danielle Marshall 101 that he needed for his collection. And then Curtis got a David Wesley that he was looking for for his. So everything worked out. Um, and Ian just also noted that it was so nice to have a good interaction with someone in the hobby. And he was so thankful for Curtis being so kind to him. Um, so I know the both of those guys are happy and that's a good success story and also just a good reminder and I'm going to steal a line from John Newman here at Sports Card Nation podcast but the hobby is the people all right before I move into today's final segment I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show as you guys know there are costs that go into producing a podcast one of my goals is to always keep the show itself free as a result I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics if you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, uh, I'm going to change course a little bit for today's final segment because I want to address something that J.J. Reddick said on ESPN last week. Yes, you heard that right. Um, I recognize this is veering somewhat from the norm, but bear with me. I think at the very least this ties in with my collecting pyramid and my philosophy of collecting. And I know I tweeted about this already, but in some cases 280 characters just isn't enough. Uh, and truth be told, I, th I think it's still eating at me a little bit. Actually, I know it is. Um, now, the clip has made the rounds on social media, so there's a good chance you've heard it by now. But in case you haven't, on one of the debate shows, JJ made the claim that Celtics great Bob Cousy was, quote, being guarded by plumbers and firemen. Uh, now, had this clip not made the rounds on social media, I wouldn't have even seen it because I normally ignore this kind of banter. Uh, in these shows, because I, I think a lot of it's counterproductive, and it's really just theater. Um, the clip that was being posted was only about 50 seconds, so I thought, you know what, surely there's more context that I need to see here. 
Uh, so I went to ESPN's YouTube to try and find one that offered more. And I found one that was a minute 50. So if there was any more to this, you know, ESPN's doing themselves a disservice by packaging everything in isolation. Anyway, um, JJ Reddick and Stephen A and Mad Dog um, Russo are trying to figure out Chris Paul's status among the all-time greats. And JJ said CP3 is already an all-time great, and if he wins a title, he should be in the conversation for greatest point guard of all time. And Russo fires back with, he's not Bob Cousy. Um, And to JJ's credit, he responded with, let's celebrate Bob Cousy in his era, but you cannot compare pre-1980 with the modern NBA. And guess what? He's right. It's really tricky. I referenced it a couple times before, but there's a great video on YouTube where Hubie Brown breaks down the differences between eras. I think it's like five or six minutes long, but um, it's well worth your time. However, this was a debate show, and when you put rational people like JJ in this setting, eventually they succumb to the theatrical element of it all. Uh, You know, that's what their employer expects them to do. I get it. Uh, And the two of them turned it into a Chris Paul-Bob Cousy debate. Now, maybe I'm the biggest dope of them all because I'm taking the time to respond, but uh, here we are. So... Uh, Reddick said Kuzi couldn't dribble left. Russo said CP3 never revolutionized the game. Uh, Reddick criticized Kuzi for never shooting over 40%, which, by the way, was kind of goofy because the league average when Kuzi came into the league was like 35%. Uh, you know, JJ led the league in 2015 in three-point percentage at, at 47.5. Now, think about how much the three-point shot has revolutionized the game in the last 10 years or so. For all we know, in 70 years, they might be criticizing J.J. and his peers for not being able to shoot the three ball over 50%. Um, And it wouldn't be fair. So anyway, after that, Russo pointed out that Kuzi had 29 assists in a single game. And I had to look that one up. He actually had 28, but I don't expect anyone to remember stats like that on the fly. Whether it was 28 or 29 really doesn't matter here. It was the assist comment that prompted J.J. to assert, Bob Cousy was being guarded by plumbers and firemen. Now, I know the plumbers and firemen joke isn't anything new. I know it's just hyperbolic to some people and it's not a big deal, but to me it's obnoxious, it's unnecessary, uh, and it's disrespectful. And I was especially disappointed to hear it from someone that puts out real, you know, thoughtful content several times a week. I'm not talking about ESPN here. I'm talking about J.J. Reddick. I like his podcast. You should check it out if you haven't. Um, regardless though, the plumbers and firemen take is one that I've seen repeated in sports card circles as well. Maybe not about Kuzi specifically, but about some of the guys from his era, uh, and also the eras before and after his. And it bothers me. Look, you don't have to enjoy basketball from the fifties, sixties, or seventies. You don't have to collect it either. But if you've enjoyed any part of the NBA at some point in your life, you have to understand that it's an accumulation of everything that came before that moment. The new rookie classes, they watched LeBron. LeBron watched Kobe. Kobe watched Jordan. Jordan watched Bird and Magic, and so on. You can't just downplay someone's career because of the era they played in. And that's tricky, and it's tempting, I know. That weighed heavily on me as I was making my top 75 list earlier this season. I wanted to try and rank great players without disrespecting them. And I think J.J. started with that mindset, but things quickly fell apart, as they are prone to do in the context of a debate. Um, If we are going to talk about Kuzi specifically, though, he was a really important piece in the early development of the league. For the first four years of his career, there was no shot clock. 
And then they added it in 1954, which coincided with Kuzi's prime. Uh, The league was speeding up, and he more or less paved the way for every point guard that came after him. I would say he was the first uh, real great innovative point guard. Now, uh, as expected, JJ's comment sparked a lot of discussion on social media uh, from both sides, and some people even responded by attacking JJ's career. So, for example, someone said, uh, Bob Cousy versus his peers was much better than Reddick versus his. Uh, now, even if you don't like what JJ said, I don't think we have to go this route either. The man can have a bad take and still have a good career. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, a couple things that might be, though, saying that we can celebrate an era and then bashing the players of said era. Um, and that's why we have to be very cautious with comparisons. You probably have heard the phrase, comparison is a thief of joy. Uh, I know Brett has referenced it a, a, a couple times, at least on the Stacking Slaps podcast. Um, I've seen it attributed to Teddy Roosevelt and a few other people. I don't want to try and change the meaning of the quote because it's really referring more to when we compare ourselves to others, uh, which is not always healthy. It can make us feel inadequate. Um, that in itself is a powerful message for the card world, but maybe in this case we can modify this saying for this situation. Um, in some cases, comparison is a thief of appreciation. Otherwise, we're just going to keep spinning the wheels on this thing, like Guy Rogers was no Ja Morant, or Bob Davies was no Trey Young. You know, yeah, of course, and MS-DOS is no PS5 either, but you probably enjoyed the hell out of Oregon Trail at some point in your childhood. You didn't need dysentery in 1080p anyway. Uh, before I close things out, I want to go back to that 28 assist game from 1959 that you know Russo brought up, and for whatever reason set Reddick off. Um, That would be February 27th of 1959. Obviously, I didn't see the game, but it's a pretty interesting box score nonetheless. Um, The Celtics routed the Lakers 173 to 139, and 63 years later, it's still the 12th highest scoring regular season game of all time. And that was with zero overtimes. A lot of the games at the top of that list have, you know, two or three at least. I think one even has four. I checked the Lakers lineup for firemen, though, and I didn't see any. There was Vern Mickelson, who was a Hall of Famer. Um, Slick Leonard was there. You might recognize that name from the show. He's also in the Hall of Fame, albeit more for his coaching career. Uh, and then there was a guy named Elgin Baylor that logged 40 minutes. And ESPN recently ranked him the 20th best NBA player of all time. Uh, no mention in their write-up of him being a plumber or a fireman, though. In fact, the only time I know of that he took on another job was when he was called to active duty in 1961 and could only fly to Lakers games on weekends. Couldn't practice with the team that year, but he still averaged 38 points per game in 48 appearances. Um, Another little footnote about Baylor in this time frame when supposedly, you know, firemen and and plumbers ran amok. Um, This high-scoring Celtics-Lakers game was just five weeks after a West Virginia hotel refused to let Elgin and two other teammates stay there with the rest of the White Lakers players. Uh, They were also denied service at a local restaurant. You know, this had happened the November before that, and the league promised it would stop, and clearly it hadn't, so Baylor boycotted this game. Um, And then Lakers teammates, like Hot Rod Hunley, actually supported his decision. Um, Coincidentally, this is also the same Lakers squad that, 11 months later, survived a plane crash in an Iowa cornfield. You might remember Slick talking about that when he came on the show. Um, According to an article that I found from the Star Tribune, 
It said the Lakers, quote, walked away from their plane unscratched on a night when their unexpected arrival was met by a hatchet-carrying fireman and the town's mortician. You know, this whole time we've been looking for firemen in that era. Well, it looks like we finally found them. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, Like I said earlier, I know there was a bit of hyperbole on JJ's end, and, and you could probably point some out on my side too. I don't want this to come across as an indictment of J.J. Reddick. You know, normally I don't like to cherry pick one comment and fixate on it. Um, the point of this more so had to do with that era, because this is a comment that I've heard in multiple places, and, and it bothers me. Um, I get a lot of requests to talk about the players I collect and explain why. Well, hopefully this gave you a you know a small glimpse, a, a, a better idea why I collect vintage, legends, Hall of Famers, and players that changed the game or players that really set the foundation for the league. Um, They're all a pretty big part of my collecting pyramid, and collecting them is one of the ways I try to commemorate what they've done for the game, and then I like to show off their cards and tell their story in the process. Uh, Maybe you have a segment of your own collecting pyramid that serves a similar function. Let me know on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Podcast or Twitter under the handle at WaxMuseumPC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>